Hello everybody, welcome to the latest Criterion cast. This is probably episode 199. We've had some uh, uh, numbering kerfuffles, so it's either 199 or 200, but either way, this is the latest episode of Criterion cast, is the conclusion of our Ingmar Bergman Silence of God trilogy. So naturally, it is 1963's uh, The Silence. Uh, We are on a tight schedule, so I'm going to dive right into it. Uh, This is Spine number 211, which Criterion describes as such. Two sisters, the sickly intellectual Esther, played by Ingrid Thulin, and the central pragmatic Anna, played by Gunnel Lindblom, uh, travel by train with Anna's young son, Johan, to a foreign country that appears to be on the brink of war. Attempting to cope with their alien surroundings, each sister is left to her own vices, I like the play of words there, uh, while they vie for Johan's affection and in so doing sabotage what little remains of their relationship. Regarded as one of the most sexually provocative films of its day, Ingmar Bergman's The Silence offers a disturbing vision of emotional isolation and a suffocating spiritual void. Uh, I will be your host for this evening. My name is Scott Nye. Joining me is the usual roster who, like I said, we're on a tight schedule, so I will not introduce except to dive to them for commentary. Uh, but as for me, this was a film that I first saw on my then-girlfriend's now-wife, I don't know, 18-inch, 19-inch television. Her apartment was abandoned one day, so I was like, I never get time alone in college, so I will sit in her apartment and watch The Silence, which is the great way for a young, burgeoning 21-year-old cinephile to spend a day. Uh, and I rather immediately was taken to it. I think it's a great film for uh, young cinephiles to get into. It's very weird and provocative and strange and isn't overly burdened with uh, some of the philosophical and religious uh, musings that Bergman has given to. I think it's a very, in its own way, accessible. I think if you're of the generation that came up with David Lynch or his uh, imitators, this is, will feel very much at home with that sort of surreal atmosphere. Uh, but as we have before, I am very interested to hear what Arik Devins thinks, because Arik is new to this trilogy, and this, I imagine, was quite a departure from his expectations that had been set with the prior two films. Arik, am I at all correct? <laughs> um, well, I don't know. I was thinking a lot about that. Like, d- does this feel like... Because when the thing is, you, you had hinted to me that, that this would be a departure, um, and so it may be the case of a... Um, you know, a, a science experiment botched by, uh, you know, observing uh, things, changing it. Sure, um, sure. So I was, it's certainly a departure, right? It, it, it has a very different vibe than the other two films, but it wasn't, I don't know what I expected. <laughs> so I, I can't tell you now, like what, what was, it didn't, it didn't match whatever expectations I had for that piece. Like it, it, it does, it did kind of fit into the, I realize that we're, you know, this trilogy is somewhat specious, right? Even Bergman himself later was like, hmm, maybe not. Um, but I, I still kind of actually do think it fits. And uh, while it is certainly a very different movie, in some ways that makes sense to me, maybe. We, we'll probably get into it. But like kind of the idea that if 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 Through a Glass Darkly is his attempt to sort of convince himself of something and Winterlight is his sort of despairing of the reality of his realization, then the silence in a sense almost feels like his moving on. Um, and so uh, that it, it kind of explains to me a little bit why uh, it, it is the way it is. But I will start out by saying just that I really, really enjoyed the film. Um, uh, I, I haven't really thought yet about which of the three is my favorite. It, 
but that is something I will probably do during the next hour. <laughs> but um, we'll expect but really, a conclusion really and a film. full justification of that decision by the end of the hour. Yeah, yeah, by the end of the by the end of the class, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, but I I really really enjoyed this film, and I I I I think I completely agree with your point, Scott, that it is um, in a lot of ways more accessible. There is a lot underlying it. I think there's a lot one could talk about, but you don't have to parse that to get something out of the film which might not be as true for the previous two so um yeah i uh really really enjoyed it and kind of found it weirdly uplifting interesting uh i I am with you on the first point about it coming from a place of sort of acceptance of like this moving past the despair in some ways moving past the idea of god of this just like well this is the world we live in and we have to deal with it in its own strange surreal way and it might not completely make sense, but uh, Bergman does feel at this point to be free of uh, the religious underpinnings that seem to hold him back psychologically, I suppose, in the past. Not artistically, I mean, but just like the hangups seem different this time around. Uh, Trevor, did you find a similar tone to the film? Yeah, I did. And I think that might be one reason why I'm not as enamored with it. In fact, I I was just looking at my old review of it where I say something along the lines of, here we come to my least favorite Bergman film. (laughs) Oh, wow. Um, I don't know if it's still that way. I've seen quite a few since that day. Uh, But for me, The Silence is a lot of um, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of of calls to other films, both in Bergman's own work as well as others, a lot of symbolism, a lot of push and pull. And I know that that's all deliberate, but for me, it it does ring hollow. I think that's part of the point, you know, is this world that it's, it's an existential uh, movie that's pretty nihilistic. I think I've, I'm very curious how Arik gets um, a lot of positivity out of it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah we'll get back to that i'll let i'll let everyone have their uh initial statements yeah no i'm excited <laughs> david do you find any positivity in this uh bankrupt world uh, yeah yeah this is definitely ingmar set free i mean he's he's cut loose the tethers he's uh at this kind of shaky tentative exuberant uh, expressionist uh point in his in his career you know you guys have kind of already stated some of the points that i wanted to make but yeah there is a kind of a liberation and indulgence uh, uh kind of a kind of an eruption of things that he's sort of kept in the can for a long time uh obviously the sexuality is a is a big piece of it and uh I will say, I'll, you know, I'm sure you'll probably put a link if you haven't already in the show notes, Scott. But my review, uh, which was written several years ago, might be a little bit more erudite and well thought out than anything I have to say tonight. Uh, but, but um, I, I think you know, I, I reread it the other day, and I thought, yeah, I think that still holds up as far as my more serious take or analysis on the film. Uh, but. I've yeah definitely been kind of living with this film over the last couple of weeks as we've had a few delays and as far as when we were recording and really been thinking about it a lot but really just enjoying uh, watching Ingmar kind of bust loose a bit here because he's he's really decided that he he's got a formula uh, if you will and and a, an opportunity to just sort of 
splatter stuff up on the screen uh, that doesn't have to make a lot of coherent sense, but but creates very strong visceral reactions in the viewer. I'm I get I get the feeling of a of a screenwriter, uh, which is where this project started, who's really kind of having some fun uh, putting putting this series of somewhat non sequiturs together, and uh, saying yeah this is this is going to kind of stir up the audience, and and it did. This I think was the most financially lucrative film in scale of dollars and. Uh, you know, for the time it was released, and and it was because of those provocative elements, uh, as well as Bergman's, you know, uh, pinnacle of reputation as the premier art house intelligentsia, middle to highbrow uh, auteur of his time. So, I, you know, that that's the thing that really stood out to me with this this watching is is kind of Bergman, uh, the young god at play. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of elements there that uh in the film that allow him to be sort of unleashed i think we touched on sort of the abandonment of god but just also a new form of filmmaking you know he's been pretty much the dramatist to this point you know with a few uh notable flourishes and definitely some very strong directorial choices but as far as the surreality there's always been you know a bedrock either it's pointedly a fantasy film as in uh the seventh seal or those dream sequences and wild strawberries uh, but for the most part he kind of you know stuck to the rules of the world and this is him probably looking around at some of the other european filmmakers uh like alain rene or even jean-luc godard who d- he despised but he was definitely seeing his films uh or pasolini or eight and a half came out the same year you have to figure he was looking around and seeing what was going on and being like well hell, I guess I can do whatever I want. You know, this really gives me license to bust loose. And I think this film is very much in concert and in dialogue with a lot of those films. And then I think the other element that uh, gives him kind of a new advantage is just using a child protagonist. And I think that point of view is very instrumental to the reading of the film. And I think where I agree with Arik in terms of the positivity is sort of that child's point of view of he's sort of torn between these two women who are at odds with each other and at very different points in their lives. And he seems to be sort of growing up in a way through that relationship and recognizing that the adult world is this complex, strange beast that he will never fully understand. And he's sort of learning to become a part of it instead of just being a child within it. And I think there's something somewhat tragic in that development always, but there's something kind of wonderful too. I think everyone reached that point when they're a kid of, realizing the possibilities lay before them. And I think sort of the ending uh, kind of speaks to that. Yeah. There's so many different elements of this film for me that kind of come together in really interesting ways. There's the um, part with the kid, like you mentioned, uh, Jürgen Lindstrom, who, um, cause this film in a lot of ways ties into me with persona, which is like two years, three years later. And then um, cries and whispers, which is like 11 or nine years later, I think. Um, it kind of feels similar in the in different like a, almost like a combination of those two films in some ways and, and and I don't have a lot to justify the persona comparison except that it's the same kid who's at the beginning of persona oh and right? he's holding his hand up to the screen and yeah. there's the two, yeah. women, the two women kind of uh-huh. juxtaposition yeah the faces. So it's like oh, yeah. it seems to be Bergman lit- literally calling back to this um this film but um I I think that that you know this film is the most sexual film I've seen uh him make um and you know and I've 
I've seen like 13 of his films or something now. So, I mean, you know, maybe there are far more sexual ones, but I haven't seen them. Um, so that's, <laughs> I think that's why it won all, got all the money. <laughs> yeah, that's probably, much like I'm yeah. curious, right? Um, that, so that th- there's that. Um, and then there's this uh, narrative of the fact that they're in this foreign country, with, which is not a real country, and, ha- and has like this very vaguely like it's about to be a civil war or something is about to be bad happen vibe going on but it creates this tension where the women can't talk to the people there but the kid of course doesn't have that problem because kids find a way to communicate no matter what uh but you've also got like sort of the people as props in a sense because the um the uh his mother is using uh this um and anna is using this this guy that she meets in the in the um uh, he's a waiter and she's using him for this sex and then, but also maybe he's using her and it's just like a lot going on. But, but for me, it's, it's, yeah, it's what David said. It's that freedom that, that I think Bergman seems to feel disconnected from the torment that he's been exploring for a while now. And for me, this one feels like it's not quite all the way there. This is the process of getting all the way there. And so the film is still very uh, emotional and intense. And there's still this similar to cries and whispers dynamic between these two sisters and, and all the things that have maybe not been said for a long time and are now being said. And this trip that was maybe an attempt to solve some of their problems that definitely went the other way. And the one sister is clearly not leaving this hotel ever again. Right. And all this kind of stuff. But at the same time, the kid represents kind of like the, the moving out of this phase. Right. And, and also being able to sort of synthesize these two women. And I've seen uh, arguments that, that they are the same woman in some sense, but either way that he's able to synthesize these different things that are going on um, and kind of stay good with both of them. You know, at the end he's got the letter from the one and he's obviously with the other and, and just, I don't know, for me, it does feel kind of weirdly hopeful as the mother is like opening the window and getting wet in the rain and, you know, kind of some of this stuff, like they're leaving this place that's kind of going through some stuff and you got the dwarfs and they're kind of a happy thing. I don't know. There's just like a lot going on, but it, it kind of all, it left me feeling a lot more like, refreshed than I was at the end of Winter Light, which I might have enjoyed more uh, in some ways, but this one had a kind of refreshing feeling to me. This is a palate cleanser. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry. That's a very rambling... Uh, no, no. Thing that I, I just did well, there. Well, I think that the film. So much I think the on. film calls for that. that that's actually I, when I say it's my least favorite. <laughs> yes. it, it probably. I, I don't mean to say it's a bad film or that I don't like it, but I do, and I think we probably agree more than we disagree because I do definitely see this as a transitionary film. I mean, he's he's mm. going from his narratives to something like persona but maybe where it it falters a little bit for me is i saw after persona and shame and some of the later films where i think a lot of these ideas find their true fruition and so when i watched this i it looks more like a scattering mess than anything (laughs) solid but i i like your perspective on it of it being bergman's um burst of freedom i like that a lot I want to just kind of talk about the connection from Winter Light to this film. You've you've got the two female leads, Ingrid Tulin and Gunnar Lindblom, completely transforming themselves uh, from these kind of repressed, uh, somewhat dowdy and and uh, extremely unglamorous, uh, you know, housefrau's or whatever in in uh, in the Swedish countryside to these. Uh, 
very conflicted, but also very urbane, sophisticated women. And it's to me, it's it's quite remarkable just that he used that same casting of those two women and and really kind of inverted their roles. I mean, to me, this is yeah, well, well, just not to disparage Ingrid Tulin's performance, but Gunnar Lindblom is is the complete magnetic center of gravity in this whole film for me, anyways. Uh, both performances very powerful, very daring, very transformative, and all of that. But uh, you know what a what a remarkable uh, juxtaposition of of characters and and Bergman's willingness and and insight to to bring these women uh, to the forefront and and cast that same pair uh, without the uh, even the crutch, if you will, of of a you know of a strong male lead protagonist other than the child. Uh, that also is a very, very uh, interesting direction that he's moving in. Uh, this is, these are a truly female centered, this is a truly female centered film, uh, uh, that I think explores some really, you know, dangerous territory and, uh, it just creates some, some very striking images and impressions along the way. Yeah. It's not the first time that. Bergman's kind of dealt with this uh, idea of, frankly, trapping women in an unpleasant and strange uh, habitat and uh, letting them tear each other to pieces. It's obviously one he'd revisit. It was very much in Persona and Cries and Whispers. But I think uh, Brink of Life is, uh, I think, undersung antecedent to that kind of tenor. And even Waiting Women in its own way, which is, uh, I think, more comedic and uh, emotionally engaged, I suppose. Uh, But it's a similar idea of, Bergman is coming from a world where women are frequently put into spaces that they're just meant to stay until the men come back, or in this case, until they transition to the next stage. You know, they're coming from vacation, then going home. Uh, But this is just meant to be a place they stop over. But because they don't really have anything else to do here, you know, everything else starts to come out through them. Uh, I don't really know if I have a point with all this, but it's just uh, yeah, no. an interesting <laughs> I, thing Bergman tends to do. Well, I, I really, I actually really like the direction you were going with that because to me, again, this film is so much more representative of other of other films and other and of its time than it is an actual film in my mind. I know that that might not make any sense, but. I do look at it and think, okay, here's when things are really changing for Bergman, but also for uh, movie criticism and what you could and could not show in America and, and how that kind of starts to, to continue to, to uh, catch a wave over the next few years. Um, and that's how I always look at it. So I, ha- I am, but, but I'm also curious about the, where it comes from and the films it calls back to, and, and in particular to, to show how Bergman's had some of these ideas floating around already. Uh, can I bring up one random thing that I just wanted to I say? I feel like this movie is very fitting for that, yes. <laughs> There's that moment where the kid, like the the guy who's who's the um like the the I don't know what you would call him, the house the caretaker of this hotel. I the maintenance man, like, whatever. Yeah, yeah, they're like the only people staying in this hotel at this point, it seems like. And he's sort of getting along with the kid and he shows the kid a photo of like I think his kids, maybe. Oh, the older guy. Yeah, the older guy shows this, gives this kid this photo, and the kid takes the photo and hides it under the carpet. Do you remember that? Uh, I completely forgot about that moment, but yeah, 
that is so affecting to me. I was like, when, how is this dude ever going to get his photo back? <laughs> like, well, and you find this film hopeful. I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I but I think really that's a good example of what I was talking about earlier of like, this kid is finding his own space in the world, kind of apart from his mother and his aunt. Yeah. Uh, where yeah. he can you know, define his own reality almost <laughs> literally in that case he can hide away someone's past yeah 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 he's definitely left to his own devices in really uh interesting ways throughout the film i thought he did I thought that that kid who really didn't do a lot like acting wise like he did this he did persona he did one or two other things maybe but very little and i i think that he was really good um and I, I was surprised that he didn't have like a longer career or anything like that. He lives on on the Bergman box set cover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I true. think he, he kind of yeah. hit the peak early and said, "Hey, what am I going to do to top this?" <laughs> I also wanted to talk about the international element. Uh, as far as I can recall, I think this is the first Bergman film that kind of deals with the idea of international travel the past times his characters have been on the road it's just within sweden i think and i think you're right is that the case with um oh it's a film that this always reminds me of where they're on a train it's one of his early ones in the in the eclipse oh, box thirst? set thirst is that international yes no you're right they do briefly go through germany well i could my be wrong theory is shot no no you're, you're completely <laughs> right but i did i i do think uh there's probably some element of Bergman liked to stay home by everything I've read. He really just liked to just sit in his cabin and read and write and uh, have sex with beautiful women. And that, that was pretty much the life that he wanted to have. And it seemed like anytime he had to travel, he thought it was a huge bother. And I imagine with his growing international profile at this point, he was having to do that a lot more. And in some ways, this film, I think, kind of reflects that anxiety that you get when traveling, especially when traveling internationally where you don't know the language. And I think it's really smart that he chose a nonsense language. In this case, it started as like uh, offset, of, I think, Estonian. Um, and then he started to develop his own made up language. But the guy, the old guy who plays the porter couldn't memorize the lines. <laughs> So the porter just started, <laughs> the guy who played the porter started speaking Swedish backwards. Apparently, he, as a child, he'd memorized children's stories backwards for some reason. So that's what most <laughs> of his dialogue is comprised of. That uh, is extremely impressive. Right? And that he kept remembering it like decades later. Anyway, uh, he's a stage actor. So memorization, I guess, was an innate quality. Uh, but yeah, I think that was a really smart decision on both their parts to keep it the sort of nonsense language. So that no matter where in the world people are watching it, they get that feeling of... Uh, isolation and that feeling of being a stranger and not really fitting in and just that feeling it sets in when you're traveling internationally of even wanting the simplest thing becomes a whole production yeah there's that great moment where uh ingrid thulin is actually she speaks like four languages to him right yeah. well because she's, she's like a translator Swedish, her character's English, a translator French. so she's yeah. probably used to getting along uh internationally but suddenly confronted with the inability to do so but they all understand the language, the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. You know, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, because it's definitely still Bergman. So of course they love Bach. <laughs> uh, well, and it's that it's that international kind of underlying uh, you know chord of humanity that that ties us together. So you know, Bergman's going to have those those classy moments, those uh, kind of artistically elevated 
conscientious appeals to his uh, sophisticated audience, or at least the audience that thinks of itself as somewhat sophisticated. <laughs> We're gonna go and uh, you know watch the nudie scenes with the with the uh, you know the cloak of intellectual respectability and <laughs> there's the sixties. That. <laughs> that's the that's the critical uh, culture I was talking about earlier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, especially the early sixties, and I and I cannot help but watch this film as very much a, a key moment of its time. You know, Scott, you mentioned some of the other films that were contemporaneous with this and you know you mentioned Renee and last year at Marion Bad and you know the wanderings of this creepy mysterious old hotel and this sense of disorientation of being in somewhat familiar surroundings but just just out of your element and just this kind of weirdness this psychological displacement uh, it just it feels very emblematic of this kind of you know kind of not not late cold war but certainly a a, a new phase of cosmopolitan internationalism and awareness of, of cultures a little bit different from our own and yet there's a commonality here uh, th these are just the elements that I, I just really enjoyed so much this this exploration this kind of tentative you know kind of shooting uh you know quivers out into the darkness to see what what sticks what lands and uh and you know creating a reaction, uh, generating a response, uh, provoking uh, ideas that, that may not necessarily be inter, you know, uh, uh, easily resolved or, or even, you know, have to make a whole lot of sense. Uh, yeah, I've been spending some time reading Bergman's screenplay and, uh, you know, there's not a whole lot of dialogue. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of description and there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, printed out mise-en-scene. And, and it's very fascinating to compare what he put on the page versus what made it on screen. For the most part, it's, it's, it's a pretty good adaptation, but there's also, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, resequencing that go, that goes on here. And then in the, structuring of the of the visual elements the backdrops and things you, you sort of see some of his intentions coming through so i i just enjoy this as a as a as a very um you know intricate uh exploration of of just what was driving bergman even even the scene that you referenced Arik, those little throwaway moments there's a lot of them in here and they, and they may not all register uh, uh you know, you talk about rewatchability. Yeah, there, there's cool stuff, whether it's the, the decor of the hotel rooms, the things going on outside the windows of the train or the hotel. Uh, the phantom carriage. The looks that people... I yeah, love yeah, that yeah, part. Yeah, exactly. I do love that part. Yeah, yeah, the, the scrawny horse and all that. Oh, yeah. You know that the, the initially the plan was to have the, the uh, two sisters be brothers, uh, I don't know if anyone else has read this. This would have been a no. much less interesting film. To yeah. <laughs> right. That's how I feel too. He told that he told Sioman that he made them women because he was afraid that the part was too close to himself. But I think that the film would have been so much less interesting if they were men. Don't you think the kid is like a little mini kid Bergman? I mean, he he yeah, looks do, a lot yeah. like Ingmar, and and you get that in in persona as well. It's like this kid really is. I, Ingmar Bergman must have looked at this kid and said. It's, that's me, you know, 40, 30 years ago, whatever. And, uh, and, and putting him in the middle of these two, you know, alluring, but very complicated women. Uh, one of them, of course, is his mother. One of the others is his aunt. 
but uh, <laughs> there is that whole uh, sexual tension as well, you know, giving his mother a back rub while she's naked in the tub and, and all the other shenanigans going on there and his, his uh, kind of prepubescent observation of all this very adult stuff happening around him. Uh, yeah, this is, uh, in a way, this is one of Bergman's uh, coming-of-age films, you could say. Yeah, I completely agree. And I definitely think it's a, a mini-hymn, or, or at least he's our he's our representation into the to the what's going on here. He's also Bergman's representation or like perspective into what's going on here, which I think is really successful. I just can't imagine it with, with a dad and a, and an uncle, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, I guess that's why, uh, he didn't make it that way. We, we don't have to imagine it anymore. That's well in the past over 50 years ago. <laughs> We've got this. It's also hard to imagine how the sexuality would represent itself. I mean, right. I, I think as, kind of strange as it is to see uh like i said the nude scenes of uh i've forgotten her name already uh, gunna lindblom aside the younger boy i i think that a nude older man aside a younger boy would automatically raise uh some more even more heckles uh and then just like the whole s- situation between her and the waiter would lose kind of all its flavor if it was just, you yeah. know, a, a straight, more straightforward seduction. Like the fact that she seems like kind of repulsed by him at the beginning then makes it so much more interesting that she chooses to seduce him later. 100% agreed, yes. Yeah, I yeah, just I dealt with know. death in Venice, so let's, let's not go back there, okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, the sex in this film did uh, cause a great deal of controversy when it was released, which only made it, uh, more talked about and made more people want to go see it as controversy tends to do. Uh, the discussions even reached the levels of parliament in at least two countries, as far as I can tell. Wow. Um, okay. And it, it was apparently only because Bergman had such a reputation as an artistic figure that the film passed censorship in so many countries. I think the U.S. in particular, uh, there was rumors, in fact, that it was cut more than it was when it was released. Apparently, Janice managed to shave only a few seconds off and still get it out. But yeah, it was largely the fact that Bergman was known as an international auteur who had done this, who had done so much theater and so many great films and won Academy Awards. And it was like, well, he wouldn't be showing us the sex for nothing, surely. Uh, but debate still raged on, and Bergman got death threats as a result. So even what? though, yeah, uh, people would call him and okay. mail his wife uh, crude remarks and uh, some. Uh, apparently at one point even fecal matter uh, came through the mail as a way of repudiating the filth that they had seen on screen. Uh, Yeah, so this film really got under people's skin in a lot of ways, and I think it still does. I mean, as much as, you know, some articles I was reading pointed out that a few years later, I Am Curious Yell would far outpace any concerns of censorship that this film could raise, but I I think the way that Bergman presents the sex in this film is still so carnal that it still manages to feel like its own sort of violence and it's own, it raises its own alarm. You know, I, I don't, there's something sort of alluring about it. You can see why Gunnar Lindblom's character is turned on and aroused by it. But at the same time, there's, there's still something very piercing about it in the way that art tends to be any really daring art that kind of breaks boundaries. It never really loses that flavor. And I find that to be true here too. Oh yeah, I think the sex in this movie is is so different than I am curious. Where I mean, and I am curious. I don't. It's not even slightly erotic, right? It's 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 very. It's almost clinical or like it's part right. of the it's pretty matter of fact. Make, like, 
yeah, in this film, especially like when she's watching the couple in the in the theater and she's like uncomfortable, but also aroused with, with you know, when kind of a lot of the stuff, I mean, there's just a lot of, uh, when she first gets back and tells the story to her sister, there's just so much stuff that is like clearly intended to provoke in a certain way that I don't, I don't feel like that other one is at all. Well, well right. I mean, she's kind of going out and getting her own <laughs> after she's seen the couple in the, in the balcony there. It's like, right. okay, uh, I, I can't end this night solo, you know? And, and at the same time, you got, uh, yeah, Ingrid Tulin's character, uh, Esther, uh, she is working solo, I guess you could say. And, and, uh, that, that's just, a a whole nother element is just, again, these are, these are women kind of empowered in their own way, uh, it, it may be a very ephemeral satisfaction. It may be a very even misguided or, or kind of hollow uh, pursuit, but they are kind of just doing it on their own terms. And, and that's that in itself, I think, may be provocative, more more upsetting to the status quo than whatever anatom- anatomical parts might be visible on the screen. Well, it also gets at a lot about the characters, not only, like I said, uh, Anna's sort of desperation and fulfilling a kind of base sexual urge through a man who she seems to have otherwise really no interest in and kind of the uh, sadness of the squalor in which they're uh, led to just lay for a few hours. Um, But also just the relationship between the sisters. I mean, you get so much out of uh, when Esther walks into that room in terms of like both her kind of pitying Anna, but also kind of jealous of her she seems to have more agency both social and sexual than esther does and esther's sort of uh reticence to engage in that sort of carnality i guess um it it seems to be both a point of pride for her and both a point of pain esther also sleeps outside the door right yes that's right yeah it's it's super interesting go go ahead david well, well, uh, Esther is the uh, the the intellectual. Uh, she's a little bit more uptight. Uh, her work is translation. I'm not even really sure what Anna does. I mean, she's she's married. There's a father who's at least referred to, although he's not really focused on much here. Uh, but she is just a more you know earthy, uh, robust woman. Uh, Esther's health is failing. Uh, you know, really almost to its terminal point. And so th- they are veering off in very different directions. Uh, Esther also appears to be childless and, you know, a little bit more, uh, you know, infertile, if you will, in, in many respects. And so, yeah, you've, you've got this, this tension between the two women and, uh, yeah, how much they may be extensions of a single underlying personality branching off into two. Again, there's that persona uh, <laughs> sort of, a foreshadowing, if you will. I mean, there, there's so many elements uh, that really tie these films together. Uh, we've already made that point, but uh, yeah, to me, Gunnel Lindblom's radiance, and and even even her, um, the pleasure he she takes in in that maternal aspect of herself. I mean, again, you know, she's you know she's ready to leave the kid behind <laughs> when it suits her, <laughs> but she she does revel in the uh, abilities to show her son affection and care. And, uh, you know, those are tender moments for what they're worth. 
Well, the, I was going kind of in the same direction there and w- looking at the differences between the two women and what they might represent. You know, they're very different as well as their kind of competition uh, for the, uh, I don't know, almost role of mother. I know that um, Gunnar Lindblom's character is the actual mother, uh, but Esther is definitely kind of feels like she might be able to help him and she's got a more spiritual and metaphysical and, you know, intellectual view of the world. Um, And yet the film in the end, uh, you know, kind of suggests one wins out over the other. And I'm curious what you guys think Bergman's going for there because, um, you know, Gunnar Lindblom's character is the more radiant one and she's also the one that uh, comes out in the end as the the survivor and the, the winner in many ways. And I don't think he does that in something like persona. I think he's a little bit more ambivalent. Um, you know, you, there could be 20 different explanations to that, but the one I'm that immediately springs to mind is that the, that's kind of the resolution of his trauma around this religious question that, that, um, Ingrid Tulin is almost like more the cerebral thinking, uh, you know, caught in the details, uh, probably tormented in the way that he's tormented character and that uh, uh, Anna is more that Gunnar Lindblom is more like the I'm fed up with this nonsense like let's just live our lives let's be people let's be physical let's be in the world let's be uh, doing what we want and that in that Bergman himself wanted to be more like that <laughs> and wanted to leave sort of that and sometimes certainly in a selfish way at the expense of those she should be caring yeah. for. And I think that's one of the reasons why for me, the film, yeah. d- there, there is a personal reaction to it um, beyond the just appreciation of it as a film itself. But, but also my view of this as being a little bit less nuanced because it does seem to lean so heavily into that, uh, <laughs> that kind of perspective. Does it, does it uh, mollify you at all? Or does it, I don't know, temper that at all that he seems to be very aware of the selfishness of his own actions like yeah he's sort of yeah and i think he always does such a good job at that in his movies that's one of the things i love about his work um and and some other uh, uh, artists work as well uh you know rainer Werner Werner fassbinder they seem to understand their weaknesses and their selfishness and their power to destroy other people's lives in such a nuanced, compassionate way, and yet they're still such selfish jerks to them. You know, that doesn't change them, <laughs> they, but they get it and they're able to portray yeah. it in a way that makes me appreciate that and kind of love it and kind of love them for it. So, yes, it, it certainly, certainly does. Um but it, it doesn't necessarily well, uh, work for me in this one where it does in others. That's a good, a very good question. Yeah. I love I'm, that you I'm, brought up, sorry, David. I love that you brought up um, the Fassbender because I just saw Baal. Oh, okay. And, great. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it, it kind of, you know, you know what I mean? Like that's obviously a much more extreme version of that, but you know, that <laughs> yeah. whole, that whole film to me is like a repudiation of that jerk. Well, and Fox right? and his like, friend, so. it's, it's like he gets it. And yet he's destroying even, you know, his lover's lives while he's making the film about right. that. It's just crazy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, exactly. I'm I'm brilliant. I'm corrupt. I'm conflicted. Please yeah. don't consider me a role model. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah. That's basically their message. But but they are they are living the they are living it out and they're sort of putting up there on the screen almost uh, what 
life might be like if if those <laughs> less bold of us uh, chose to follow those impulses. Here's the path of misery that you might be finding yourself on. Uh, yeah, it it is a, just such a fascinating uh, conundrum because again, you know, uh, it seems like we can't get through a Bergman movie without doing a little bit of a biographical analysis here. Uh, yeah, an amazing creative figure, but uh, one who did a little uh, damage and wreaked a little havoc along the way. Yeah, I think it's good that we don't forget that and that we don't act like he he was himself not in some ways a, a complicated guy at the very least, right? You know, a lot of interesting relationships in his history, and and that we can much like with Fassbender, what we were saying, like you, you can you can give them credit or kind of what um, Trevor was saying, like you can give them credit for recognizing that they're a jerk while also still being like, yeah, but you're still a jerk. <laughs> you <know? laughs> like like self-awareness is great in, until you don't change anything. Uh, yeah, even on the shoot for this film, which uh, by most accounts was one of the happiest, actually, in spite of like the sort of agony the characters are having on screen, it seemed like everyone was having so much fun with the inventiveness of it all, and the actresses really loved diving into their parts. Uh, but Sven Nick has told this story and he hadn't been working with Bergman that long. You know, the fruits of their collaboration were really just being planted, uh, especially with this film where they're getting so adventurous with the visual design of it. Uh, but apparently at one point, Nick mother was dying and he got a call in the middle of shooting and he went over to Bergman who was rehearsing the actors. And apparently you never interrupt Bergman while he's rehearsing the actors. Of course, there's all these rules around, these sorts of things, but he goes over to Bergman. And he's like, "Look, I've uh, I got to leave for at least the afternoon. My my mother's dying." And Bergman's like, "Well, if you leave now, you'll never come back to this set or any other." <laughs> oh and, my! Yeah. Wow. And Sven okay. Sven Nicholas was basically like, "Well, I guess I don't want to come back to a set like this. Then, uh, if you're going to yeah. treat me that way, then I'm out." Uh, <laughs> they made up, of course, but uh, it does point to Bergman's extremely volatile uh, temper and his certainty that he can get his way no matter what, uh, even if he did manage to uh, repair their relationship. And Nick Fist didn't seem too bent out of shape about it in the retelling I read. But uh, yeah, definitely I points to... the hell out of him. Yeah, <laughs> definitely points to that very element of Bergman you're talking about. There is also apparently in the scene with uh, Gunnar Lindblom and uh, Berger Malmstrom in the hotel room after they've just had sex, uh, the script called for her to be naked and she refused, and Bergman gave her quite a hard time about that in a very rough way. Um, but still, Gunnar Lindblom had the most admirable things to say about him. She loved him to death. Uh, very strange relationships he built with the women in his uh, professional lives. Uh, that I, is for sure. Yeah, I did also want to touch on the presence of Berger Malmström, who was a huge presence in Bergman's early films. You know, he starred in almost all of them for a good stretch there. And then after a certain point, just wasn't heard from again. And it's kind of too bad that his reputation went down just as Bergman's was going up. Because uh, I really like... Uh, is it too bad? Is I always too bad? I always liked him in those early films. <laughs> I think there's a certain sweetness he brings to the characters that uh, most mm. other Bergman actors don't have. Um, and I think the sort of innocence he portrays is uh, touching in its own way. But I, I do really like him here, and just the way his face has changed over the decade that's passed since then, um, it just it kind of, I don't know, I, in some ways I, I think of it as his characters from those past films now disillusioned and grown up and have been through so many bad affairs, and now they're just left picking up women and 
the hotel they work at. And there's something hmm. kind of sad and tragic that he brings just through that nature. But apparently I'm the only fan of Burger Malmstone in this uh, crowd. So <laughs> He could be the guy from A Ship to India. I just don't like him in A Ship to India. So like, <laughs> He's a little miscast like, there. Mm. I'm thinking more like it rains on our love territory, some thirst territory sure. maybe. Summer interlude, certainly. Yeah, Summer interlude is the yeah, one I where he... He's the most sympathetic to me and the most likable. He is the best in Summer Interlude, for sure. Yeah. And I, I don't, yeah, I don't like to hate the guy, but I just like. <laughs> Clearly. There are so many men in Bergman's um, uh, troupe that I think are like among my favorite actors, like of all time, you know, Um uh, and he's he's not. <laughs> sure. I mean, he wouldn't be among my favorites either. I guess I just feel like he was fitting for that period where Bergman was still figuring himself out and still testing the waters, and he feels sort of part of that same naivety in a lot of ways. And again, I think his presence yeah. here is well-placed, if you know that history, just the fact that yeah. he looks so now so desperate and so downtrodden and sort of reduced from the, a former youthful optimism. Fully agreed. He is no Gunnar Bjornstrand. But <laughs> We're on the same page there. <laughs> I know. I know yeah, that's why it's so fun. <laughs> I just appreciate you deflecting a little bit from my, I, I'm sure, calls that I'm a Bergman hater again. I don't know, but <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do wonder if the reason that this has risen in your estimation is just because you saw other Bergman films you liked less. Uh, probably. Um <laughs> but but I, I like I say I don't necessarily think it's a it's a bad film I I do really like it I just when I relate right. it to so many others that do hit me in that personal and you know what I like in art way this is way down the list for me among his films but that's that's more as we've said many times before a testament to how awesome his filmography is and this one just doesn't doesn't do it for me but i i think i appreciate a lot that goes on in it and and certainly tonight's conversation has even opened it up more for me um i still don't have the bergman box set so i have not seen it in you know it's it's all of its glory in high def but i i will re-watch it as soon as i get that i'll rewatch this whole trilogy again in short order because i think it just calls for that but i i do it is one that's in uh, always rewatchable for me. Yeah, we should do a podcast someday. Worst Bergman film. I think that'd be fun. Oh man, mm. there's a lot of in contention there. Unfortunately, <laughs> um, since you brought up the box, I will say this is a gorgeous new transfer. Uh, and I, it made it reminded me that I didn't follow up on the uh, mastering error with Through a Glass Darkly, which is shared in this one and around the same time. Around the 27-minute mark in both, uh, I can't remember the exact like second or the exact scene, but there's a repeated frame. Uh, if you hmm. watch uh, both movies starting at the 27-minute mark uh, and just kind of keep an eye out for it, you'll see moments in each, right before a cut in each instance, where the scene seems to just pause for a second. And sure enough, there's a repeated frame just before the cut. I don't know uh, if that's some quality assurance problem in part of the Swedish uh, restoration team. But they otherwise did such a bang-up job that it's hard to complain too much. Uh, I'm watch- I have it on my new 4K TV right now as I- we're recording this episode. And, uh, man, it just looks good. Well, you heard it here, f- here f- first, folks. Bergman Gate is alive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I do have to depart in about five minutes, but is there anything else we wanted to touch on real quick? 
Well, as Gunnar Bjornstrand himself said, this is pretty strong stuff. <laughs> but I, yeah, I, it's it, it. This is this is just a fascinating little specimen. I, I think it's it was a little bit of an unstable kind of uh, you know high frequency point, uh, a bit of tension that Bergman was working through. Uh, I think he kind of resettled after this, but this was just part of his transition to get where he had to go. Uh, I'm really thankful for this film uh i think you could make a pretty convincing case that winter Lake, uh the silence and persona would make a pretty good trilogy <laughs> uh, uh we could also start here and and maybe go to persona and then shame yeah. with some of the yep. kind of foreign war elements and some of that kind of cold war uh mystery uh disorientation thing going on uh you know uh, when when i watched shame i was like wow bombers and jets and i'd kind of forgotten yeah well there were there were tanks in 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 this one as well in, in the silence so yeah the, the, these these things kind of mix and match i suppose the trilogy is what it is and it's going to be re-released now in a new uh edition for those who don't want to do the box set uh, all the way so, you know, the trilogy has been kind of sealed for all time as such, but uh, it's it's all part of a spectrum, and uh, glad that we had a chance to talk about this one. I like that way of putting it, a spectrum. I like that. Thanks, David. <laughs> yeah. You're I very think, welcome. <laughs> I think that's spot on. I think something Bergman said about Persona, the idea that it's just a feeling and less, a, it's not really about something, it just is something, and I think that's true of the silence, too. Um and maybe that gives its license to just experiment and be weird for weirdness's sake. Uh, but it, to me, it, it has always dug out some emotional response and not just uh, pure, you know, I, I can get with a film that's just pure nonsense and beauty and strangeness. Um, but I, I think this does dig out something. And I think this conversation has gotten a little closer to defining that. Um, Ark and Trevor, any final thoughts? I just want to say thank you to both of, to all of you um, that we did this, you know, over the summer films and now we've done it through these and I just have so much fun. Uh, so I just, just really, really thrilled to be a part of it. And uh, uh, hopefully we'll get back together again someday. Oh, there's always more Bergman. There's always the worst of it. <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> uh, I'm good too. Thanks so much guys. This has been a lot of fun as usual. I think this is episode 200 when it all gets said and done. So I think it's a suitable occasion. <laughs> well, I think we're still, I think we still promised Ryan some sort of uh, hullabaloo. So we'll definitely be back to celebrate, whoop, whoop, two, whoop, whoop, whoop. <laughs> to celebrate 200 episodes of Criterion Cast in some form. Uh, but to all the listeners out there, thanks for sticking with us. I know we're not as frequent as we used to be, but we do still enjoy putting these episodes together. So hopefully you enjoy listening to them. Uh, and until whenever that celebration is, uh, don't get lost in any hotel hallways, you know, go to the right rooms and, uh, don't hide anyone's photograph. Yeah. Don't hide people's photographs. That's just mean. Not nice. Yeah. All right. Goodbye. <laughs>